All right, welcome everyone. We're looking at Philippians this morning. I hope you have a set of notes. Everybody got some notes? There's some notes back here. Still, our Wes has got them out there. If anybody needs some, let me know. Let's uh, begin with our quiz here from last week. Number one, bishop or overseer is the same office. True. It's the Greek word episkopos. Episkopos, we get the word episcopal from it. And the King James translates it bishop. It has the idea of an overseer, a superintendent, a general contractor or something, that kind of idea. So it's really the same office. Two, Overseers and elders are the two orders of officers in the local church. False. So overseers and elders are really the same office. They're just different terms to describe the same office. Remember, you can call them overseers, elders, pastors. That's the the same office. And the one we're missing there is what? Deacon. Okay, it's just a second office. And then number three, the phrase partnership in the gospel, one, three, includes the idea of financial support. True, Paul thanked the Philippians for their partnership in the gospel, which that included, they were supporting him from the time he left Macedonia. And they were, of course, sent a gift to the Philippians, as we'll see by Epaphroditus when he's in Rome. The phrase defending and confirming the gospel refers to Paul's legal case before the Roman authorities. Yes, 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 probably in this case, because those are legal terms, that is, they're used in legal proceedings. The defending and confirming are used often in legal contexts, and we assume here that Paul's case is going to come up pretty soon, we're thinking, and according to tradition, he was released. Uh, he was let go, and he had another missionary journey we talked about, a fourth one, and then he was rearrested and brought to Rome, and there executed. Five, justification means to make holy. Uh, false, remember, it means to declare that you're righteous, the declaration, a legal thing. Sanctification is how we are made holy and so forth. Okay, good. We're looking at um, the exposition now. We're looking at the introduction, verses 1 through 11. Last time we looked at the greeting in verses 1 and 2, and we looked at Paul's thanksgiving in verses 3 through 8. Now we're ready to look at Paul's prayer for the Philippians. Some might call this a prayer report because Paul is telling them or reporting to them what he prayed for when he prayed for them. He says um, in verse 9, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. I say here the word and, beginning verse 9, points us back to Paul's prayer in verse 4, where he said there, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray for joy. Now he's going to tell us what he prays. With the words, this is my prayer, 
Paul reports the contents of his intercessory prayer for the Philippians. Paul's genuine thanks for the partnership of the Philippian believers caused him to pray for their continued spiritual progress, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. If you're really concerned for others, that concern should express itself first in prayer. And we recognize the importance as we recognize the importance of the work of God in any lasting spiritual growth. I think this is something we often forget. And it's something I've come across even in our own church, and it's something in my own life. You know, a problem comes up. Hey, let's find this, let's do this. We don't really pray first. And I find, you know, people in our church I talk to, sometimes I'll mention a situation, and they want to do something. And sometimes you can do something. But sometimes you can't. There's a lot of lots you can do in certain situations. You you can pray, and that's a very important thing. Allow, allow God to work in their lives and see how that develops and so forth. Sometimes we have to be patient. And Paul says he's praying for them. Praying for their spiritual well-being and their growth. And that's really our obligation to all people in our church and others we know, Christians especially, to pray for their as Paul prayed for the Philippians to pray for their spiritual well-being, their growth. That's our first obligation. So the basic petition here, notice, is that the Philippians' love might abound more and more. So love, we know, is a fruit of the Spirit. Remember Galatians 5, should say 522. Whoever did that slide messed up there. You know, I don't know who that was, but somebody did. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. So the very first thing that Paul says as an evidence of the Spirit is love. Uh, love is the fruit that enables us. It, it enables all these other virtues. So all the other things that we should do, all the other virtues, should be controlled by love. First Corinthians 13, remember? Paul is talking to the Corinthians, if I speak in tongues of men and angels but I don't have love, then it's worthless. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I have the mysteries, but I don't have love. So if I possess all if I give all my possessions, if I give all if I give all I possess to the poor, you know, if I don't have love, I gain nothing. So this concern, this prayer that we have for others has to be exercised in love. Without it, no Christian spirituality is complete. Paul says in Colossians, Therefore, as God has chosen people holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, these are all good things, wonderful things, over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So Paul is praying here that their love may abound. I say here, love, Paul says, must be intelligent he says it may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. It's got to be intelligent and morally discerning. That is, that's what depth of insight means there. 
morally discerning. <clears throat> what is encouraged here is not a thoughtless sentiment, but love based on knowledge, the intellectual perception that has recognized principles from the Word of God, spiritual knowledge gained from an understanding of divine revelation, from understanding the Bible, enables us to love what God commands and in the way He reveals. So the joining of these two ideas, the joining of knowledge to this depth of insight, stresses moral perception and the practical application of knowledge in the circumstances that we encounter in life. This word insight here, translated insight, depth of insight, is a word that occurs uh, just once in the New Testament here, but it's it's a word that occurs over and over in the book of Proverbs. When we think of Proverbs, we think about wisdom, don't we? We think about insight. It occurs 22 times in the book of Proverbs. So what Paul is praying for is knowledge and, we might say, wisdom, insight. Um, spiritual knowledge is no abstraction. It's intended to be applied to life. And that takes insight. That takes wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge, we often hear. And that's right. The application of knowledge that produces spiritual and practical insight into the issues of life. <coughs> so this is essential for us, to have knowledge, but to know how to apply it. And we get that through scripture, through experience, through time, through growth, and so forth. Because, you see, love is not primarily affection. You can display affection pretty easy. But love is not affection. It's not blind. It shouldn't be blind. As we know, love is seeking what's best for a person. And, you know, that often means you've got to have some discernment. You've got to have some wisdom. You don't just give a child everything they want. Uh, that wouldn't be wise. You'll have a, you'll have a monster on your hands <laughs> pretty soon if you do that. And that's true even in our own situations with others. You know, sometimes we, you know, we have to have insight as to how we deal with other people. What's best for that person? That requires knowledge of the situation, knowledge of scripture. And that's what Paul is praying for here in the lives of these Philippians. This is real spiritual maturity. We could use more of this in our own lives, more knowledge and depth of insight. Verse 10, so that you may be able to discern what is best. You have this knowledge and insight, this wisdom, so you can be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In the beginning of his prayer, in verse 9, Paul prayed that Philippians would have ever-increasing love accompanied by ever-increasing knowledge and moral insight. This is now followed in verse 10 by two purpose clauses with the so that. The first purpose of having knowledge and moral insight is so that or in order that you may discern what is best. This is the immediate purpose. So the immediate purpose is I want you to have this so you'll be able to discern, make the right decisions, and discern what is best in your life. I mean, that's that's what we're trying to discern. We're trying to find God's will for our lives. And Scripture doesn't lay out a perfect plan. You know, it doesn't tell us every step of the way. We've got to exercise wisdom and insight. And so 
Paul prays that we'll be able to discern what is the best thing. There's a lot of things we could do. What's the best thing? What's the best thing? And so uh, Paul plays, first of all, for what is best. That's the immediate purpose. Why the Philippians need ever-increasing knowledge and insight. The second purpose, in order that you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, expresses the ultimate purpose. So the ultimate purpose of this knowledge and insight is so we can make the right kind of decisions so our lives will be pure and blameless. So we'll grow in Christ. Sanctification. I say the purpose of this love increasing in knowledge and depth of insight was that the Philippians might be able to distinguish the really important issues in their lives and to act on the basis of such distinctions, discerning what is best. In this way, they would be fully prepared for the coming of Christ. So this discerning atmosphere in which our love should operate requires us to continually discern what is best. Some things are clearly good, some things are clearly bad. In others, and that's often many others, as I said, the boundary is not so readily visible. In Christian conduct and the exercise of our love, such factors as our influence on others, as well as our effect on others, or our effect on ourselves, all this has to be considered. Paul says... 1 Corinthians 10.32 Do not cause anyone to stumble whether Jew, Greeks, or the church of God. Stumble means to fall into sin. We don't want to do anything. We want to make decisions so we don't harm a person spiritually by what we do. Um, And some of the things we have to sometimes do or tell people may seem like it's harming, but it's actually for their own spiritual good. It's for their spiritual well-being. Um, 1 Corinthians 10.23 I have the right to do anything, Paul says. You said. I mean, he's quoting the Corinthians here. They say, you know, I've got the right to do anything. But Paul says not everything is beneficial. And they say, well, I have the right to do anything. Paul says not everything is constructive. So that means we have to discern what is best. That takes knowledge and insight. And that comes from learning the scriptures, hearing them applied to us. That's how, that helps us. We come to church, we hear messages, we study the Bible on our own, and this gives us knowledge, it gives us insight over time. And the last phrase, for the day of Christ, indicates that we must stand before the Lord and give an account. You know, this is sobering, and it's joyous. We're going to stand before the Lord, but, you know... We're going to stand before Christ. That's very sobering. Uh, it should produce an effect on our lives. You remember what John says? Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Verse 11, fill with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. The Philippians are not, are not to only be pure and blameless, verse 10, but they also are to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. 
The fruit of righteousness means fruit that consists in righteousness, or fruits that consist in right conduct. The New Living Translation translates, May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. What is that? The righteous character produced in you, in your life, by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. Paul desires that when the Philippians stand before Christ, their lives will have been filled with the right kind of fruit. He's not talking about mere human uprightness that's measured by outward conformity here when he says, you know, I want you to be filled with the fruit of your salvation. It is the fruit of your salvation. This righteousness comes as a result of God's work in us. You know, it's not, as Paul says about himself in Philippians 3, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. You see, that, that was Paul before. Here's Paul the Pharisee. He imagined he was right with God. He was outwardly conforming to what he thought God wanted in the Old Testament. But that was a righteousness of his own that came from trying to conform to the law and so forth. But I want the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ that comes from God. So God works at work in us, changing us, and produces fruit in us, the fruit of righteousness. And that's the kind of conduct that God wants for us. And that's what Paul is praying for, for the Philippians. Paul is speaking of spiritual fruit that comes from Jesus Christ, produced in them by the Holy Spirit. So when we stand before God, you see, all the glory belongs to Him. Because that fruit is produced in us by the salvation we've experienced by the work of the Spirit that's been implanted within us produces that fruit of righteousness. And that is to the glory and praise of God. Well, now we come to uh, Roman numeral 2. We're leaving the introduction. And we're talking about Paul's missionary report, 112 through 26. I say we now move to a detailed account of Paul's current circumstances. This is somewhat unusual since Paul usually covers this material toward the end of the body of the letter in his other writings. So if you look at his other writings, Paul will uh, usually at the end of his writings talk about what's happening to him and his plans. Romans is a perfect example. If you read through Romans, you get this doctrinal treatise and so forth. And finally, you get to chapter 15, and there he says, okay, let me tell you about my situation, what's been happening to me, and I'm planning to come to Rome, and I'm going to do this and do that. But he always waits to the end, generally. However, the material in 12 through 26, where Paul informs the Philippians about his own situation, is common in letters of friendship in the ancient world. And it may be that Paul is following that general format since one of his main purposes, writing Philippians, was to thank them for their financial support. So uh, there are in the ancient world different kinds of letters. And Paul, many people think, is sort of following 
kind of a letter of friendship, the way you would speak to friends to thank them and so forth, kind of a thank you. Certainly he's doing part of that, and that might be why this comes first, possibly. Philippians is different, however, in that the report is quite long in comparison to contemporary letters of this kind. Normally it's a, you know, a couple of verses, a couple of sentences where you're just giving a report, but here Paul goes into quite a bit of detail. We see Paul's circumstances, 112 through 18a. In this section, Paul talks about the progress of the gospel, ministry in Rome. Not only has the Praetorian Guard itself been exposed to the gospel, but other Christians have received encouragement to preach boldly. Unfortunately, however, Paul has faced some opposition. Well, the unhindered progress of the gospel, Paul says there's good things that are happening, verses 12 through 14. Verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. That's a surprise. Paul wants the Philippians to know about his immediate circumstances. What Paul says in verse 12 may have come something of a surprise. If we are correct in assuming the Philippians had heard Paul was under arrest. We don't know exactly what they knew because they sent Epaphroditus. They may have heard that he was under arrest and sent him then. They may have sent him before when they knew he was a prisoner in Caesarea and he was going to Rome. We don't know exactly when they decided to send, but they probably think Paul is not in a very advantageous position. And so... uh, Paul's circumstances were to be viewed as a plus for the gospel, he says, not a disaster. I said, Paul says that his recent circumstances, his chains have not been detrimental, but advantageous, which is quite quite amazing, you know. Paul is in chains. How could that be beneficial? How could that be helpful? Well, God works all things, you know. As Pastor Ken says, everybody works for God, you know. So even the Romans have to work for God. Well, Paul will eventually explain his own feelings about his imprisonment when we get to to verses 20 through 23. But his first concern here is to make sure his Philippians friends understand that to his own delight, and we said perhaps even to their surprise, his imprisonment has actually advanced the gospel. Advanced the gospel. And verses 13 to 14 are now going to spell out how this is so. He says, verse 13... As a result of me being, you know, in chains, of what's happened to me, being arrested, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So it's not that Paul is there because he's a murderer, he's done something, he's a thief. No, it's because he's a Christian. That's why he's in chains. The first way in which the gospel has advanced through Paul's circumstances was related to unbelievers. The words palace guard translate the Greek word praetorian. Prisoners sent to Rome from the provinces in appeal cases, and remember Paul was arrested in in Jerusalem. He was arrested in Caesarea, arrested in Jerusalem and brought to Caesarea in Caesarea, he was there for a couple of years. Then he appeals to Caesar and is taken by ship to Rome. They're entrusted to 
the once he gets to Rome, to the prefect of the Praetorian Guard. Prefect is a Roman title that can be used for civilians or military people. It's a it's a title in the in the army. It's all it's all was also used sometimes in uh, in military and uh, in, in civilian work. Eventually, it became a very important position. The term Praetorian stood for the emperor's bodyguard. There's various estimates of how many soldiers there were, at least 500. They were the only troops permanently stationed in Italy. Now, the Romans had other troops. Their regular troops were called legions, the legionaries. Now, they had these legions, these armies that they raised, and they were outside Italy. They were outside in the provinces. They were all around Gaul and Spain, all around to kind of guard the empire. And they had 20-some of these legions at this time uh, outside the Italian peninsula, peninsula and certainly outside of Rome. And it was considered treason for a general to bring his troops uh, onto the Italian peninsula. Uh, The Romans were afraid, you know, naturally, that if you God brings an army in, uh, he will uh, he'll take over. Roman Rome was supposedly a republic with a senate and so forth, um, and so the Romans were always afraid that these armies would be brought in, and so it was considered a real act of treason to bring your army into uh, Italy. That's the river there called the Rubicon. And at that time, uh, above that particular river was considered Gaul, and uh, down here was the province of Italy. And uh, you may have uh, remember this expression, crossing the Rubicon. Have you ever heard of that expression, crossing the Rubicon? <clears throat> this comes from what Julius Caesar did. In the year 49, um, he... Uh, he had, at the time, he was a general. He had legions and so forth, and he conquered Gaul and so forth. And uh, he was ordered by the Senate to dismantle his army. He chose not to. He brought one legion across the Rubicon, and that was an act of treason. Now, he brought that legion across. He took over the government. He became the dictator of Rome, ultimately, you know. But it was really an act of treason he did. And so that expression, crossing the Rubicon today, means you've done it. <laughs> There's no turning back. Once you've crossed the Rubicon, you know, now he's, he's either got to fight and win or he's going to lose. You know, there's no turning back once you've crossed the Rubicon. Does anybody know what he said when he crossed the Rubicon? You weren't paying attention in history. When he... <coughs> he said, the die is cast. He said, the die is cast. What does that mean? What is that, the die? What is a die? What is a die? Well, it's dice, but it means that it's set. In other words, this is set. We're in it. We have to... Whatever happens. Whatever's going to happen. So the die is what? The die is cast. Yeah. What is a die? 
dice. Now, you're not supposed to know that dice thing, you know. I'm, I was waiting to hear if somebody knew what that die. So, die is the singular of dice, isn't it? So, dice. So, the dice is cast. The die is cast. There's no turning back. You know, it's just another. It's a way of saying, I've crossed the Rubicon. He supposedly said, Ali electa est in the Latin. He said, the die is cast. There's no turning back, you know, and I'm going to have to either win and take over Rome, or that's going to be it. And he did. So um, he brought those troops in. Well, eventually, of course, he was assassinated and so forth. Uh, eventually, his nephew took over, named Augustus. He became the first real emperor. Now, he was very uh, he was very willing to work with the Senate. He didn't act like a dictator and so forth. But he did have his own personal bodyguard. He had those troops, the Praetorian Guard. And they were a special elite force, the best uh, troops uh, in, the, in the army. Uh, normal legionaries served for uh, 20 years. You served for 20 years and then you got out. Uh, these people only had to serve 16 years. They were, the, they were the most elite troops. Eventually they became a powerful force in Rome and you eventually had to have the support of the Praetorian Guard if you were going to be the emperor. Uh, eventually, we get to the Emperor Claudius. Uh, he's made emperor because he has the support of the, the Praetorian Guard. So they become really a kind of a political force later on. So Paul says uh, that the, uh, the whole palace guard, the Praetorian Guard... Now, uh, as I say here, Paul has would have been chained to a Praetorian guard on a four-hour rotating basis. So this made it possible for a lot of these soldiers to hear the gospel. You know, every four hours, you've got a new guy coming on. You know, and that would probably be probably hundreds of them would have been exposed to the Apostle Paul and heard about Christianity, exposed to the Christian faith. So that's why Paul can say it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to others, others around in the you know the situation, why I am here. I'm not just your normal prisoner. I am here because of the gospel. Because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Verse 14. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So the second way the gospel had to be advanced through Paul's imprisonment was that his circumstances had encouraged Christians in Rome to become bolder witnesses. One might suppose that his imprisonment would have dampened any evangelizing efforts and have caused the believers in Rome to go underground. But exactly the opposite was true. So somehow they gained courage from Paul's example. They saw Paul standing up, proclaiming the faith even to these uh, elite soldiers and that gave them courage they were able to lay their fears aside if he had become depressed and discouraged and said oh me this is terrible that would have had a real negative effect you see on the Christians in Rome but Paul didn't do that Paul used his changed circumstances which seemed very negative as a way to spread the word of God and encourage Christians in Rome. 
What we're reading here now probably reflects the situation in Rome in the early 60s. In the early 60s, Nero was emperor. At first, he was a pretty good emperor for the first few years. But then he becomes crazy and wild. He's getting pretty bad now. In two more years, probably 64, he will actually start persecuting Christians. He blames them for a fire in Christian. And the first really uh, Roman persecution, uh, legal Roman persecution, or actual governmental persecution of, of Christians happens around 64 in Rome. Up until this time, it's sporadic. Paul faces persecution here and here and here and there, but there's no official doctrine kill these Christians, you know, persecute these Christians, but that happens shortly. But things are getting bad, apparently, and we're experiencing that here even now. Christians had begun to fall under suspicion already and so forth. Well, there's also blessings, but it's mixed with adversity. Verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and strife, but others out of goodwill. The bad news about the progress of the gospel proclamation in Rome was there were actually two groups of preachers. While some were doing a good thing, only one group had the proper motives for their actions. They were proclaiming the message of Christ out of envy. Some were proclaiming the message out of envy and rivalry. In light of verse 17, it's clear they were wrong, that, that their wrong spirit was directed against Paul. He says, they were supposing they can stir up trouble for me. Both of these groups were apparently doctrinally orthodox. Those who preached Christ out of envy and rivalry were not wolves in sheep's clothing. They were not pseudo-false Christians. In Paul's view, they were brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul repeatedly asserts that both preach Christ in verse 15, 17, and 18. See, this goes back to verse 14. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters had become confident and dared to proclaim the gospel. But unfortunately, some are preaching Christ for the wrong motive. They're preaching out of envy and rivalry. I say, but those preaching Christ out of envy and and rivalry were mean and selfish, using the occasion of Paul's confinement to promote themselves. Why were they doing this? We'll get more into this as we go along, but it's perhaps they were envious. I'll just say that at this point. Envious of the Apostle Paul, that's one possibility. Uh, perhaps they stirred up uh, difficulty within the Christian community in hopes of gaining a following for themselves. They're apparently opposed to Paul. They're not opposed to Christianity, supposedly. They preach Christ, but they have something against the Apostle Paul. And that causes discord. That can happen in churches and communities where you have believers who agree on the gospel but have problems with each other. Now, thankfully... Others, to their credit, were moved by feelings of goodwill for Paul. It says others preach Christ out of goodwill. They have, a, they have the proper spirit towards Paul. They had this renewed energy for preaching Christ, and they were joining with Paul in this great enterprise. 
Verse 16. The latter do so out of love. That is, those who preach Christ out of goodwill. They, the latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me as I am in chains. The nobler preachers of verse 16 recognize the apostle's sincerity and unselfishness. They realize that his present circumstances were part of a larger divine program and they had never deviated from it. He was in prison not by his own miscalculations, nor by chance, but by the operation of God's sovereignty. God had brought him to this place and time for, he says, the defense of the gospel. So recognition of Paul's imprisonment, the nature of Paul's imprisonment, caused some believers to respond in love for him and for the cause he represented. They stepped into the breach when Paul, you know, was limited. He's there under house arrest. They stepped into the breach and went where he couldn't go. They were eager to ensure the gospel did not fail to be proclaimed while Paul was in prison. But the former group of preachers, verse 17, preach Christ out of selfish ambition. These former group of preachers was guilty of insincerity, insincerity, particularly toward Paul. That they preach Christ and that Paul found no fault with the content of their message, at least he doesn't mention any here, as we have noted, that their problem was not primarily doctrinal, but personal with him. He says wrong motives. They're preaching Christ for the wrong motives. So Paul doesn't mention any doctrinal deviation here. I say, but many wonder if Paul was being too generous with this his description of these believers who were stirring up trouble for him. I think he may be. It's possible... I think it's possible and maybe even quite likely that um, there were some minor areas of difference between Paul and these people who opposed him in Rome. Um, I think it's possible that they were trying to establish a type of Christianity that was not fully Pauline Christianity. Some of this we get from the uh, gospel that to, to the epistle Paul wrote to the Romans. Now, he's in prison in Rome right now, but he wrote to the Romans about six years before this when he was on his uh, end of his third missionary journey. And he has this unusual phrase, my gospel. Did you ever notice that? This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Sounds kind of arrogant, doesn't it? Now to him who is able to establish in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with Revelation ministry. See, here's Paul, and the Church of Rome is an unusual situation because Paul will tell us in Romans 15, it's been my practice to preach Christ where he has never been preached before. Paul was always a pioneer missionary. He went where there was no gospel ever preached generally, and he established churches there according to 
the Apostle Paul's doctrine, which was God's doctrine, the right doctrine, the right teaching. But he's writing to the Romans. And it's no surprise that Romans is like a systematic theology book. (laughs) Because Paul is writing to the Romans, he wants to use them as a base for his next operation. He wants to come to Rome, he says, and I want to establish Rome as the base of my operations like Antioch was. And I want to go out to the western part of the empire and evangelize that. But you and I need to be on the same page. So he lays it out in Romans. Here's the doctrine. Here's what I teach. Here's what you're supposed to believe. This is my gospel. But it's the correct gospel. It's the true gospel. You know what I mean? So he just lays it out. Here it is. I'm coming to Rome. This church had already been established. We don't know exactly how. There were people on the day of Pentecost from Rome. They may have gone back to Rome. Or people from other parts, other people who were evangelized in other parts of the empire came to Rome. So there are already believers there. Most likely, we think it came out of the synagogue, probably. Jews in the synagogue got saved and so forth. So what I'm saying here is this, I think one explanation of this is that what we have here maybe is people in... Um, Rome who have been there for a long time, they may have been there in the beginning and here's Paul, he comes in this is sort of Johnny come lately but Paul has all the authority, he's an apostle apostles speak God's word <laughs> when apostles speak you have to listen You know, if we, ha- if we really had apostles today we'd have to listen to them they, they speak God's word they're authoritative they're representatives of Jesus Christ well, there aren't any apostles today, but there were. When Paul is speaking here, they have to listen. They should listen. But you see, remember Romans chapter 14? In Romans 14, Paul, when he's writing to the Romans, is dealing with an issue in the church. And it's clearly a Jewish Christian issue. Remember, he talks about two problems there. Some Christians think that we should observe special days. And, and not eat certain food. So some Christians in Rome, some Jewish believers probably, there was there was problems because some people in Rome, some of the Christians in Rome, Jewish Christians were saying, all Gentiles have got to observe the food laws. They've got to observe special days. This is a problem of, you know, the Old Testament. How much of the Old Testament do we have to keep? That's a big issue. That's something that needs to be figured out. So my point here is Paul does not condemn these people because they're not like Galatia. In Galatia, in the Galatian churches, you've got Gentile churches that were invaded by outsiders. We call them Judaizers. They came into the church after Paul established the church and they were saying, you've got to keep the law and be circumcised to be saved. Paul says anathema on these people. Let them be accursed. But that's not what's happening here. These people are truly Christians, Paul believes. But I think there may be some differences of opinion. I'm I'm just, this is a hypothesis here because Paul doesn't say, but it certainly is possible that there are differences with Paul. Paul comes in, these people had been very prominent probably in the church, and he comes in with his message. It's not quite what they believe. You can see there could be tensions there. But as verse 18, I say, will tell us, Paul says that whatever they were preaching about Christ, it stemmed from an improper motivation, false motives. 
They wished, Paul says, to stir up trouble for him. The word trouble can refer, should say, to outward trouble, that is, persecution, or more probably in this context of inward distress, such as 2 Corinthians 2.4. I wrote you out of great distress, that's the same word we have here, and anguish of heart with many tears. Probably these people were self-seeking opportunists promoting themselves at Paul's expense. But how does preaching of Christ add to Paul's personal distress? As I said, perhaps before Paul came, they enjoyed a certain prominence in the church. But here's the apostle Paul comes, the representative of Jesus Christ. He's eclipsing these people. Now Paul is in prison, and maybe by taking advantage of Paul's imprisonment, they hope to recover some of their former popularity. I'm hypothesizing here. Uh, they, they may have thought that, that, uh, that Paul would resent them. You know, maybe they're saying things about Paul. You know, this Paul, we're not so sure about. You know, we, we, we've got a church here from the early days. He comes in. He's raising issues. And maybe they thought, you know, we'll do this. We'll preach our version, and he'll resent this. He'll get mad. But that's not what happened. The Apostle Paul was bigger than that. Uh, they failed to reckon the, the greatness of this man. And he says, okay, even though they have the wrong motive for what they're doing, they're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, resurrection. They're preaching that truth. There may be some differences. I'm hypothesizing on the edges here. But I'm, I, I can rejoice in what they're preaching. It doesn't mean that these issues aren't important. They are important. Paul said in Romans 14, he tackles those. You know, he teaches about them. But he's not going to blast these people unmercifully. You know, he... If they're preaching the gospel, then that's, that's, that's a positive thing. Verse 18a, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Paul's conclusion, what does it matter, reveals his sense of values. The importance of the gospel in his proclamation so outweighed any personal considerations that he would not cloud the issue by insisting on settling personal grievances or minor differences. Now remember, this is not false teaching. When you get to Galatians and you get false teaching, Paul blasts that. If you're teaching, if you're teaching false about the gospel, if your doctrine is not correct about the gospel, how to be saved, Paul has no... No time for that. But he's convinced, as he said here, Christ is preached, even by these preachers with the wrong motives. And so long as their antagonism was kind of just personal towards him, he could rejoice in the greater purpose of proclaiming the gospel. That was being accomplished. And that's quite an attitude. You know, we live in a day when people say, in the common parlance, I'm not going to be disrespected. You know, I'm not going to be disrespected. It's about us, you know, <laughs> often about us, rather than the greater purpose. The worst thing that can happen is we, we have to suffer some injustice. Nobody can stand to suffer any injustice today at all for the greater cause. 
But Paul did. Paul's attitude, 18b through 26. Joy and salvation. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Remember, he says at the end, and because of this, the gospel's proclaimed, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Though the latter part of verse 18 is clearly related to the previous section, Paul now seems to move on to make a new point. Most of the verbs in this section, beginning with I will continue to rejoice, are in the future tense. So that's why we broke it here. He's talking about the past. I rejoice. And now here's the future. I will rejoice. Here's what will happen and so forth. Paul's thought moves Paul's thoughts move from his present joy concerning the preaching of Christ by any and every means to his future joy regarding his own salvation and the honoring of Christ in all circumstances. Verse 19 gives the reason for Paul's rejoicing. He is confident of his future deliverance. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. The word deliverance is the Greek word soteria, more commonly translated salvation. It can on occasion refer to physical deliverance, as in the NIV and other translations imply here, or it can, apply, it can mean spiritual deliverance, salvation as the King James Version and other translations. So, you could translate, what has happened to me will turn out for my salvation, my spiritual salvation. The word is used 17 times in Paul's writings and always refers to spiritual salvation, unless verse 19 is the exception. Now, obviously, NIV thinks it is, and people think it is. The other two uses in Paul and Philippians speak of spiritual salvation. Why does the NIV take the word to refer to physical deliverance? In this case, why do they do that? Delivered from imprisonment, primarily because of verse 25. Verse 25 will say, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy and faith. So they're looking down to verse 25 to what he says down there and say, Paul seems to think he's going to get out of this imprisonment. So he's saying, I think what has happened to me will turn out for my physical deliverance here. But I think this is wrong for two reasons. Actually, three reasons here. One, as I noted, Paul uses the word the word translated deliverance to speak of spiritual deliverance, salvation, and every other occurrence in his letters. Paul connects his adversary, his adversary with his deliverance. Paul connects his adversity, I'm sorry, with his deliverance. This adversity that I'm undergoing, I'm rejoicing in because I know it's going to turn out, this, this being in prison is going to turn out for my deliverance, my salvation. Paul connects his adversity with his deliverance. It makes little sense to say that what Paul has suffered, whether we include imprisonment itself or the work of his opponents will lead to his release, deliverance. 
how would his adversity, what his opponents are doing, lead to his deliverance? But it could lead to his salvation, as we'll see. The deliverance that Paul speaks about is one that he will experience regardless of what happens to him in prison, whether by life or by death, he'll say in verse 20. So I think it's more likely that he's saying that there's that these seemingly negative experiences in his life, his imprisonment and the opposition of some Christians, will ultimately be for his own spiritual good, his ultimate salvation, his present sanctification and future glorification. Paul's statement in verse 19 is similar to what he says in his last letter in 2 Timothy. There Paul is in his second and final imprisonment and clearly has no hope of release. For he says, I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure at hand. Yet Paul utters a cry for salvation there. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. What Paul is confident about in verse 19, for I know, is that no matter what trials and temptations he faces in this life, God will ultimately bring him to salvation. Paul is expressing confidence in his own Perseverance. His, you know, salvation is in three phases. Past, present, and future. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. Paul's talking about this future aspect here. Paul is expressing confidence in his own continuance and the perseverance, his continued faithfulness to the gospel. But Paul recognizes that his perseverance does not take place automatically. But rather, God uses the prayers of the Philippians and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ to bring about Paul's perseverance. The important point to note in all of this is that Paul's sanctification, his persevering in his Christian faith, does not take place in isolation from the support of the church. It's the Spirit working through the prayers of God's people. Our spiritual relationship to God is not a purely individualistic matter. We're dependent upon the Spirit's power in answer to the intercessory prayers of people in our church to pray for us. The Spirit's help is normally manifested through the fellowship of God's people. Verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. What Paul says in verse 19, that his present circumstances will turn out for his salvation through the Philippians' prayer and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ is quite in keeping with what Paul eagerly expects and hopes. Paul's earnest expectation and hope is that at the consummation of his salvation, when he stands before Christ, he will not be ashamed. Remember, this is probably similar to 1 John 2, 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So instead of being ashamed, Paul has this confident hope that he will continue to maintain this courage that he's had, this sort of courage, this characteristic of his ministry all through his life in the past. He wants Christ to be exalted, he says here, regardless of whether it's life, physical life, or death would be the verdict of his body here. Paul, Paul, notice Paul says, doesn't say, I will exalt Christ. He says that Christ will be exalted in my body. He's not relying on his own courage. He's relying on the work of the Holy Spirit who would produce this result 
in response to the prayers of the Philippian believers. We better stop here for the day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great example of the Apostle Paul. And help us, Father, to gain insight for our own lives and our spiritual well-being and growth in grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.